0: Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to be re- begin reading the second ch- chapter of Jeremiah. We're going to read the first 13 verses. <clears throat> Hear now God's word. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt, disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me when they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to eat enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, and they went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross the coasts of Cyprus and see or send to Gadar and examine with care. See if there has been any such thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Let's pray together. Jesus, we ask that you would restore unto us the joy of our salvation, that you would renew a right spirit within us, that today and in the days to come, we would find ourselves to be a people who drink deeply from you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God tells Jeremiah, comes to him after calling him as a prophet, and says to him, I want you to walk three miles from Anathoth, your hometown, down to Jerusalem. I want you to find a street corner, and I want you to start preaching. And what we have in chapters 2 through 6 is that sermon, or at least the highlights of the sermon, that Jeremiah gives from a street corner in Jerusalem. It's a striking sermon, but it's also disturbing. At least in our section of the sermon, we're going to start with a question, and we're going to end with a charge, but both of those are going to make the exact same point, which is this. We give up what we have in Christ, and we chase after what we don't really want. We have something in Christ, we have this salvation in Christ, and in our sin we give that up and we chase after something that we don't really want in the first place. To set up this question, God begins in verses 2 through 3 to liken his relationship with his people like a husband to a bride. He says to them, we were like young people in love. I led you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I carried you in the wilderness. I set you apart as holy, and then I defended you and protected you against anyone or anything that could possibly come against you. I was your protector, and you as my people, you were my prize. He says that, but then in verse 5, he comes to a dramatic shift when he leads up to this question. Now, we all know that when we're in an argument with a loved one, there's a way to attack with declarative statements, right? You can come after somebody and you can say to somebody, you're doing this thing to me. You're doing this to me. And if I'm on the receiving end of that and I hear you in a declarative statement, I'm immediately thinking about my defense, right? I mean, that's not always the case. I do this and sometimes I do this. I'm ready to defend myself when you come at me with a declarative statement. But you can use that same content and ask a question, right? You can come to a person and say to them, why are you doing this to me? What's going on? Why, why is this happening? Why are you doing this? And all of a sudden, with a question, I feel utterly exposed, right? I'm not, I'm not as ready to defend myself. I'm ready to hear what the person has to say. And that's precisely what God is doing here. God is the one being who could spout declarative statements with impunity. I mean, he could level a charge against us without a hint of hyperbole. He could blast us out of the waters with an accusation, but at least he doesn't lead with that in this sermon that he brings against his people. He starts instead of that with a question. I don't mean to sound irreverent when I say this, But when God asks us a question, it's almost like he makes himself vulnerable to us. He asks a question to the very people who are hurting and defending him. And some people read in this question, genuine pain and puzzlement on the part of God. Look at verse five. Here's his question. He says, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? What did I do? Was it something I did to you or something that I said to you? Was it something with respect to your salvation, bringing you out of slavery and out of the land of Egypt? Was it something in the way that I provided for you every single day in the wilderness? Does it have something to do with the promised land, the land that I led you, the land to enjoy its good fruits? God is inviting a grievance if there is a grievance to be had against him, but with respect to his salvation, there is no grievance that his people can bring against him. And if it weren't enough for us to give up what we have in God, we double down on this sin, we turn our back on that, And we chase after something that we don't really want in the first place. Look at the rest of verse 5. It says, These people, after they went far from me, they went after worthlessness and became worthless. Friends, we are what we worship. We can't compartmentalize our worship. We can't do worship on the uh, side of something. Worship is something that changes us. It shapes us. It bends us into its image. We are what we worship. We can't feed lust in a corner of our lives and then expect to keep it there and go from there and have vibrant, self-giving relationships with those of the opposite sex because we are what we worship and worship rules us and we have now sexualized every encounter. This is going to be something that shapes us because what we try to do in the corner. We can't keep materialism in a closet. We can keep our purchases in a closet, but we can't keep our materialism in a closet because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so no matter how far you try to run from those things, our hearts are intimately connected to our treasure. We are what we worship. We have materialized every single encounter, and it now rules us. It shapes us. It bends us into its own image. I was meeting with a woman in our church this week for a new member interview, and she shared her story with me. It's a moving story. She talked about some of the hardship and the suffering that she has seen. And really, by the end of the story, I just wanted to know from her, how is it that you're still following God? After all you've seen what you've seen, after all you've experienced what you've experienced, why are you still worshiping God? How do you still know God? And she said this, She said, actually, there was a season in my life, it was a hard season, where I turned my back on God, and I wanted nothing to do with him, and I believed that in that season the devil came to me, and he was like a loan shark, and I could not possibly afford the price that he asked of me. That was one of the fun, most phenomenal new members interviews I've ever had. That was a profound and a stark way to put this very thing. We give up what we have and we chase after what we don't really want. Something that is not going to satisfy us and ultimately it is going to cost us dearly. That's what's happening, this dynamic of sin in our lives. But we need to hold on to that thought because God begins to deliver it with a question. What have I done that you've wandered so far from me and chased these things? But then he turns and shifts to bring a charge against us. Look at verse 9. Verse 9's, I will contend with you, can be translated, I bring charges against you. And the charge that God brings against us is not good. Verse 12, he says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate. At what? What is this charge that God brings? Well, God could have said, at sin, sin, nothing but sin. I see sin here. I see sin there. I see sin in your life everywhere I looked. He could have answered and said, this is my charge that I bring against my people. But he doesn't say that. He gives us a mini parable that has captured our imaginations for thousands of years. He says, imagine a farmer with a plot of land. I want you to get this picture in your mind. There's a farmer in Israel and he owns a plot of land. And we know that water is scarce in Israel. It's a big deal where you get your water. Water is life. You have rainy seasons, but then you also have dry seasons, and so it is very difficult to come by water to have a farm. Well, the scarcity of water in Israel, I think, is illustrated by the book of Genesis. In Genesis, wells come up all over the place. You have people who name wells. You have people who pick fights over wells. You have people who fill wells. There's even a proposal that happens by a well. Water is very scarce. Wells are a big deal. And it's hard as a farmer to make a living in Israel. So you've got this farmer and he's got a plot of land. And on that plot of land, he actually has a living spring. He's got a fresh daily supply of water. It bubbles up on his land. He has access to it every single day. He can get fresh water, which means if he has water, he can water crops and grow a lot of crops. It means he can have livestock because he can water the livestock. It means that he can build family wealth around this bubbling spring because it is incredibly valuable to him. It's rare and it's incredibly valuable. You can drink it, you can water with it, you can do anything with water. You got water, you've got life in a place like Israel. Well, the farmer doesn't really value what he has. He takes for granted the fact that he has this kind of access to water. And so he begins to think to himself, you know, this thing is very valuable and it's on the corner of my land and I know my neighbors would want it if they had access to it. And so he thinks to himself, what if I sold this sliver of land and gave somebody else this well? I wonder how much they would pay me for it. So he thinks about that, he deliberates, he sells the sliver of land, he makes a lot of money for it, he takes the money and he begins to buy things that he's always wanted. But after he's done that, he needs to ask himself the question that every farmer in Israel asks themselves, and that is, what am I going to do about water? I just sold my spring, now what am I gonna do? So the farmer does what many other farmers do. He builds himself a cistern. Now a cistern is like an in-ground pool, right? It's this big tank that you dig into the ground, and that means when the rainy season comes, it waters your crops, but it also begins to fill this cistern with water so that when the dry season comes, you can draw water from the cistern and you have access to water even when it's dry, even when it doesn't rain. Well, cistern work is backbreaking work. You're in hills with limestone. You've got to dig into rock without any kind of power tools or jackhammers. You do it by hand. And so this farmer sets about doing that work. He sets about digging himself what could be a living room-sized cistern in one of these hills. He digs it, he lines it with plaster, and he waits for the rains to come. After a while, the rains come, they water his crops, they fill his cistern, he's got water, life is good. The farmer was able to play the system both ways, right? He was able to sell the living spring and make the money and spend it, but he was also able to dig his own cistern and he was able to fill it with water. And so now he has wealth and he has water and everything is good for him until he realizes something has gone terribly wrong. He goes out to check his cistern Right when the dry season begins and he realizes that the water level of the cistern is beginning to go down. There's a crack or several cracks somewhere in the plaster, somewhere he can't see. And this water that he is so utterly dependent on on the front end of the dry season is now leaking out of the cistern and into the ground. And it is beginning to abandon him. Can you feel that desperation? Can you see yourselves on the front end of this dry season and feel the terror sinking in? Can you imagine the first day that your child comes to you and says, Daddy, I'm thirsty. I want a cup of water. Imagine the shame. I had water. I had a living spring of water. I had fresh water. I had daily access to water What on earth was I willing to trade water for? What did I buy with the proceeds of this spring that I now enjoy so much? What do I have that I wouldn't give tenfold, a hundredfold if I could have that spring of water back? Water is life and I gave it up and I lost the very thing that I need. Friend, Jeremiah says that in our sin, that farmer is you and I. Verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We give up what we have, a living spring of water in Christ, and we begin to chase after what we don't want and what cannot satisfy us in our sin, this broken cistern. According to the language of Jeremiah 2, we are wealthy beyond our wildest dreams in Christ. Look at some of these verses. We're the bride of Christ. We're the first fruits of his salvation harvest. We've been set apart as holy in his sight. He defends us and he protects us. We are his heritage. We've been delivered from the slavery that we once endured, and he now carries us in this time in the wilderness, even places that feel like drought and deep darkness, and he leads us into this land of plenty described in verse 7 to enjoy its fruits and its good things. You and I, in Christ, are heirs of glory. We are heirs of of the very glory of God. But in our sin, we turn our back on what we have and we begin to chase after something we don't really want. This double evil of Jeremiah 2.13 was put into very stark terms by a friend of mine last year when he said, I know as a Christian that I'm supposed to treasure Jesus above all things, but that's really hard to do when my girlfriend wants to sleep with me. Wow, that's a really profound and stark way to put it. I don't know too many people who can put their finger on the battle line of their heart and especially to do that in front of another person. He's saying, I love the idea of Jesus as my glory and my heritage. I read this and I love it. I really do, but I live in a body and I have wants and needs. And when it comes down to it, push comes to shove. I know what I should do, but I decide what I shouldn't do. Even if I hate this thing, even if I know I'm ashamed of this thing, even if I know that it hasn't satisfied me in the past, I can know what I'm supposed to do and treasure, and I can do the very thing that I don't want to do and will not satisfy me. Here's the scary thing. You and I can have an impeccable worldview And our friends can still find us face down in a cistern. Turning our back on living water and drinking from something that will not satisfy. Drinking the fountain of living water which means walking with Jesus and enjoying the soul satisfaction of our salvation. That's not just a disposition that we carry about with us throughout the day. It is a daily action. It is habits. It is a way of being in the world. Pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards once said, I love this quote, endeavor to promote spiritual appetites, by laying yourself in the way of allurement. Did you hear that? Endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourself in the way of allurement. In other words, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, stick yourself in places that Jesus is going to make you happy. Fight for those places, find those places, and stick yourself in those places. Populate your life with places to drink Jesus deeply. Prayer, fasting, singing, scripture, worship, gratitude, Generosity and service, fellowship and friendship, these are places of allurement. These are places where we actively find ourselves to drink deeply in Jesus. And when we do that, when we place ourselves in those areas in our life, we will find Jesus do something that our salty sins cannot possibly do. He will satisfy our thirst in him. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that we would indeed taste and see that you are good. You invite yourself to that very thing. You invite yourself to be tasted. You invite yourself as living water that we can drink deeply. And I pray that we, as your people, would place ourselves in ways of allurement that we would find with friends, with our church, on our own before you, places to drink you deeply and to be satisfied in you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.